Amen. Amen. Second Peter chapter 3 this morning as we continue our morning, Sunday morning series through Second Peter. We're in chapter 3 for the next three weeks. And each chapter has a different sort of flavor to it. And so when we come into chapter 3, that's certainly the case as well. We're going to see that chapter 3 centers around the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll be talking about that a little bit each week. While you're finding Second Peter chapter 3, just an encouragement for you. This coming Tuesday night over in the cafeteria, continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And this week we're going to be looking at Jesus' first miracle that he ever did, turning water into wine at the wedding feast. And we're going to be talking about what significance does that miracle that Jesus did have for us today. So we hope you'll be able to turn out 7 o'clock Tuesday night over in the cafeteria. So Peter's been talking to us about the importance and priority of our spiritual growth in our lives and how we as Christians really need to focus on the Word of God and on our spiritual growth. So we come into chapter 3 this morning and here's how he starts out. Dear friends... The words mean beloved, prized, valued, precious. Peter wants his readers to know that they are very much valued by him. Uh, He has such an affectionate feeling and bond towards these people. And that's the way the body of Christ should be. That's the way we should feel about our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, you'll notice four times in this chapter... Peter calls his readers dear friends. In verse 8, he says, dear friends. In verse 14, he starts out that verse with dear friends. And then in verse 17, once again, he says, dear friends. And so he wants these folks, first of all, again, to know how much God loves them and how much they are loved by him. Especially when he writes this. He says, this is already the second letter I have written to you. We believe that the first letter is 1 Peter, a letter we're going to actually study at the beginning of 2014 on Sunday mornings. And Peter says, in which I am trying now in this second letter to do one thing, to stir up your pure mind by way of reminder. Peter is all about wanting to stir up these readers, these fellow Christians who are very much loved by him. And let's not forget that his audience are spiritually mature believers who are well established in the faith. He talks about that back in chapter 1. So what's he mean by wanting to stir us up? Well, hopefully you're already a little stirred up this morning from worship And from just getting up with God today and thanking God for another day and maybe spending some time with Him even alone this morning. Because God wants us to be stirred up. What's it mean to be stirred up? It means to be fully aroused or fully awakened from sleep. And in, in this context, in the Bible, it is sort of a metaphor for Christians not 
continuing to be lethargic and complacent and ho-hum about their relationship with God and, and their responsibility in this world and why God has placed them there, but to be fully awake and fully engaged on why they're here, why God created them, and what we are to be doing with our lives. That's why Peter says, I want to stir you up. And so it, it's a reminder to all of us that no matter how long we've been a Christian, in fact, maybe sometimes because we've been a Christian for a long time, that instead of getting caught in that cruise control mentality where we just sort of get comfortable, if you will, in not a good spiritual way and just sort of just business as usual, that we are allowing ourselves and God to stir us up and, and, and have us fully alert and awake to our spiritual life. And he says, I want to do this by stirring up your pure minds. The word pure here is a really interesting word that, that Peter uses. It's a word that literally means without wax. It's where we get our English word sincere from. And the reason it was used in that context is because in Peter's day, there were people that would buy and sell their, their uh, stuff on the marketplace, a lot of times pottery and whatever, and if the pottery was defective, they would fill it in and, you know, hide, try to hide and cover up the cracks. And the only way you could really tell the quality of the pottery was to raise it up to the sunlight and have it tested by sunlight. And that's exactly the meaning of this word. In other words, Peter is saying, I know you're spiritually mature believers, but I never want you to, to forsake having your mind, your thinking, your way of thinking, tested by the sunlight, if you will, of God and His Word. Always be willing to hold your mind and your thinking up to His light, to His Word, and let that sort of develop your thinking and develop your mindset. Because if we don't do that, then we'll end up becoming lethargic and complacent and, and our minds and our hearts will become hardened over time rather than held up to the light of God. And so he's talking really here about, you know, how we view things and how we look at things. And it all goes back to our thoughts and the way that we think. And so Peter is saying, the one thing I want to accomplish in this letter is I want to, I want to get you guys awake again. I feel like you might be nodding off a little bit spiritually here and, and you're not fully engaged in what's going on and, and you're just sort of, you know, being mesmerized in, in a negative way by everything around you and you're sort of in this spiritual fog. And so Peter says, I'm coming along writing this to you, hoping that God's Spirit will take these words and will literally stir up your minds and that you will allow your minds to be held up to the sunlight of God and His Word and you'll be stirred. And he says, I'm going to do this by reminding you. See, it's never, again, we've never been a Christian too long or grown to the point where we shouldn't go back and be reminded of things that we already know. Today, we get caught up in always something new. You know, and churches are all about, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run something out there that, that's new to try to, and it's never about 
Isn't there things that we already know that we need to go back to and be reminded of? Because if we really had a handle on all those things, then obviously we wouldn't get to some of the places that we get to. And so don't ever be afraid as a Christian to go back and review and restudy and relearn and reread things that you already know. Because God's Spirit will always take those things and always bring fresh new insight and wisdom out of His Word. We talked about that in contrast to the false teachers and false prophets in chapter 2 who are always dangling something new out there for people. Rather than, as Peter says, by way of contrast, let's go back and be reminded of things that we already know. So, he goes on then in verse 2 to say, I want you to recall both the predictions foretold by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So basically, Peter is covering the entire Old Testament and basically up through what we would call the Gospels uh, of of Jesus Christ there. And what he's really saying is, so I want your minds to be stirred up, your pure minds to be held up to the sunlight of God's Word that you already have. And I want you to continue to focus on that. It is so important. And Peter here is not just talking about us knowing the Word of God, but being captivated by His Word, being gripped by His Word. It's one thing for us as Christians to say, I know that. I recognize that verse. I've heard that passage of Scripture before. I know what the Word of God says here. It's another thing altogether to totally allow that word that is supernatural given to us by God himself to really grip our life and direct our lives and and to become the authority of our lives that we've talked about in 2 Peter. That I don't make choices and decisions apart from the authoritative word of God. That's what Peter is saying here in verse 2. And so then in verse 3, he says, Above all, understand this, that in the last days, blatant scoffers will come being propelled by their own evil urges. One of the reasons why Peter is encouraging his readers to stay alert, to get vigilant, to get awake spiritually, and to know what's going on in their spiritual life and what's going on around them and to be gripped and captivated by the Word of God is because as we get closer to the return of Christ, as we move through history, there's going to be more and more and more to distract believers. And believers who are, have a distracted mind then isn't a pure mind. You see. God doesn't want His children to be all distracted or double-minded. He wants us to be focused. And we need to stay focused. Or else we'll even get caught up in the way others are living, whether they are professed believers or not. And one of the things that Peter is going to say is to us, he says, look, you've got to stay committed to Christ regardless of what the environment is around you. Even if other Christians aren't being stirred up, even if they're in a spiritual malaise, even if they're indifferent right now spiritually, even if they're not on fire for God, Peter's saying, you've got to remain awake and on fire for the Lord. 
Because you're living in a very unique environment, Peter said. And as we get closer to the return of Christ, there's going to be more and more scoffers. And notice, Peter says, I want you above all to understand this. Because we're not going to be living in a day and age when Jesus does come, where predominantly our nation and our world is going to be filled with committed Christians. No, it's going to be just the opposite. That looking for real commitment out of Christians is going to be less and less and less. So the contrast is going to be between those who are trying to live committed to Christ in an environment where pretty much else, everybody else is being swept up into the way of the world. The wide road Jesus talks about that leads to loss and ruin and pain instead of that narrow road that really leads to life. And Jesus says, few really find that road. The word scoffer here is an interesting word. It really comes from the root of having a hard heart. That's where it starts. These people become scoffers or mockers of God and his word because their heart has become hardened at some point. Which again goes back to why it's so important for us as believers to continually allow God to stir up our pure minds. Because when we allow our minds and our way of thinking to be held up to the light of God, it prevents our heart and our mind from becoming hardened and stubborn and unmoved and unwilling to move and unwilling to change when God moves into our life and wants to do something. What's happened to these scoffers and mockers is they've become very hardened against God and His Word. And when the Holy Spirit tries to work in their life, they put a wall up and they won't permit Him. They quench the Spirit. They grieve the Holy Spirit of God through their hardenedness. We must be careful that we do not become hardened to God. But this word also means to trivialize, to uh, disrespect God and his word. And notice Peter says, here's the primary reason why they have become so hardened too. Because they are being propelled by their own evil urges. In other words, it's all about gratifying one sinful uh, pleasure after another. It's all about, you know, one sinful, uh, selfish impulse after another. That's all they care about. And in their selfishness, and in living for self, and living for sin, rather than God, that's the direction of their life. And so anytime God, you know, tries to work in their life, they become hardened because they want to do what they want to do. They want to go their own way. They want to do their own thing. And because of that, they have become now hardened scoffers who literally trivialize God, who marginalize God, who continue to push God out primarily because they don't want to give up their lifestyle. Whatever that lifestyle is. They don't want to change. And they have the attitude through the hardness of their heart that somehow if I surrender to God, God's this killjoy. He's just going to make me miserable. I'll never be happy if I truly give my life to God. So I'm going to do life my own way. Not realizing that the exact opposite is true. 
because God is our creator, he knows us better than we know ourselves. If we would just totally surrender our lives to God, he has our best interest at heart all the time. He knows exactly what will fulfill us and satisfy us more and better than anything or anyone else in the universe. But they want to hold on to their lifestyle. And if, if they conclude that there is a God, then that also means that they've got to conclude that somehow that God's probably going to hold them accountable or responsible for their life. And so that's why they continue to push God further and further and further out to the fringes of not only their lives, but then wanting us as a nation and us as a people, even in this world, to continue to push God out to the very fringes to where he probably doesn't even exist. And if he does, he's so far out there, he has no bearing on my life anymore. And Peter says, above all, Christian, understand this. Let this truth sink down and settle into your heart and mind. Understand what's going on here. Because they will go on to say, where is the promised return? Ever since our ancestors died, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. When they begin to question whether God will ever return or not, they're in a sense expressing a denial and rejection of his return, which again puts them right in that, that camp of, I don't even know whether I believe in God or not, and I certainly don't believe he's ever going to return. They deny the return of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But notice what their reasoning is. Their human reasoning is what we would call uniformitarianism. In other words, nothing ever changes. They say, well, you know what? You Christians, you've been talking about Jesus returning for a couple thousand years now. And look, for a couple thousand years, history just keeps going on. And everything's the same. God never intervenes. Nothing ever... So. I don't, I don't really buy into that whole return of Jesus thing. I, I just totally discount that. I reject that. I deny that. And I'm going to live like it too. I'm going to live as if he either doesn't exist, and if he does, he's never going to come back. And I'm never going to be accountable or responsible for anything that I do. Here's what Peter says. For they deliberately, verse 5, suppress this fact. Let's talk about these words, deliberately suppress. Here's what Peter says. The words mean to refuse to take notice of. To avoid. To intentionally ignore. In other words, they have made a determination not to know something. That's what Peter's saying. It's not that there aren't facts and, and things out there that contradict their philosophy of, of living and, and their philosophy of life. It's just that if they, if they look at that, then they've got to deal with where they've come and, and how they're living their life. 
and what they've settled on as far as a philosophy of life. So as long as they pretend like those facts and those truths aren't out there, then they don't have to deal with it. But it's not that God hasn't given them truth or facts or revelation contradictory to their philosophical, uh, where they're at philosophically. It's just, Peter says, they just choose to pretend like it's not there. In other words, there's evidence over there, but I'm not going to look like, I'm not going to look at it is basically what it is. And Peter then goes into several things that they choose to avoid. They choose to intentionally ignore. They choose not to take notice of or else it's, they're going to have to deal with it and come to terms with it. And so Peter goes on to say, they deliberately suppress this fact, that by the word of God, the spoken word of God, the heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water. The first thing Peter says that they choose to ignore is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They deny creation. Psalm 30, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist says, Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came into existence. He issued the degree, and it stood firm. God created this universe. And those who deny creation are literally avoiding the evidence. They are intentionally not looking that way because if they looked at the evidence and the truth and the facts, they would have to come to the conclusion that there is a God and that that God will hold them accountable one day. So they deliberately, willfully suppress this truth. Notice something interesting, too, in verse 5. Peter reminds us that when God created the earth specifically, he created it as the watery planet. And literally, God created it with the means of its own destruction built in. Let's... We're not going to do a science lesson, but I want you to see where Peter's coming from when he uses the words, the earth was formed out of water and by means of water. The pre-flood world, which was much different than our world today. In the pre-flood world, some things were similar. Obviously, most of our earth is covered by water. Okay? It's the way God created it. And God also created it that underneath the earth, There are these vast reservoirs of water underneath the earth. In the pre-flood world, though, there was something that's not here today. There was literally a canopy over the earth, a watery canopy in the the book of Genesis that literally prevented uh, dangerous ultraviolet light from coming to the earth, that that provided uh, an earth with a climate that had no extremes like it did today. It would have been much more all the time, all the way through uh, the season, if you will, the same. There, There were no spikes in high temperatures or 
way low temperature. And there were no great storms like there are today. It's one of the reasons why people lived so long in the pre-flood world. People ask all the time, why did those people live for hundreds of years? Well, they lived in an almost perfect climate and environment. God had given them everything that they needed on the earth, but then there was this canopy of water over it that sort of shielded them and provided this this just beautiful world that they lived in. When the flood came, God not only obviously brought the waters up from the reservoirs of the earth, from the bottom up, But he popped, if you will, that canopy and all that water then fell to the earth as well. So that the earth was literally in a water sandwich. And oh, by the way, it already had water on it to begin with. That's why when people say, oh, I I just can't buy a worldwide flood. Really? Because there's water all under this earth, all over the earth, and the earth is predominantly water anyway. Then you add the canopy to it. Yeah, it actually makes more sense. And notice what he says, verse 6. Through these things, the world existing at that time, the world in Noah's day, the pre-flood world was destroyed when it was deluged with water. The word destroyed means rearranged. So again, the topography, the geography of our world today is very little like it was in Noah's day. So Peter is saying, they deny creation, and the second big thing that they deny is the flood. And even though they say, well, everything's the same, they forget that throughout history, God has intervened many times. And I'm just going to give you, Peter says, a couple of examples of when God intervened in dramatic ways and changed the course of how everything went on this earth. But again, we know that people today and down through history have denied the flood. They deny Noah. They deny a worldwide flood and say it was just a local flood. Notice what Peter writes. He says... The world at that time was destroyed when it was deluged. The Greek word is kataklizo, where we get our English word cataclysm from. The word means to be submerged. It means to be covered. It means to be overwhelmed with water. He's not talking here about some little localized flood. He's talking about a worldwide flood. And Peter says, here's what they do. Instead of looking at the facts that are all in evidence around the world of a worldwide flood, they choose not to look that way. Because then if they go, well, maybe there was a worldwide flood. Hmm, maybe God is true. Maybe what God said is true. Then somehow I got to face that and I got to deal with it. So I'm going to pretend like God never created the world in the first place and God never intervened and judged the world by a flood in Noah's day. And yet, I'll just give you one example again because this message is not a science class. There are fossil beds all over the earth. 
that have fossils of animals embedded into these same beds of animals from different places in the world. In fact, where my wife and I grew up, this small little town in western Maryland called Cumberland, Maryland, there is in a mountain above Cumberland called the Cumberland Bone Cave. In that cave, they discovered hundreds of years ago, bones and fossil deposits of animals from Africa, from Asia, from all over the world deposited in that cave. There are scientists that come from all over the world and have for years to study, just like they have other fossil deposits, that cave. And that cave is a clear example of how do you explain animals from all over the world getting to the same place, being embedded in the same fossil bed, if there wasn't a worldwide flood? They deliberately suppress that fact. They choose to ignore it. They don't want to deal with it. And so Peter here is saying, Christian, don't let your mind get hardened. Continue to let your mind be stirred up and held up to the sunlight of God's Word so that you and I will not get in that condition like the mockers and scoffers who begin to doubt and deny what God has done and who God is and what God has said because Jesus is coming again. And regardless of how many scoffers or mockers around the world go, he's not coming back. Peter says, you as a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to stay on your toes regardless of if everybody even around you, even if they all fall asleep spiritually, even if they're all lethargic and complacent and indifferent, he says, you need to stay on target. Because Jesus is coming back. And one day when you see your Savior Jesus, you will be glad that you stay devoted and committed in this environment and climate that you live in, filled with mockers and scoffers, who refuse to look at the evidence that God has given. In fact, that's why then Peter is building his argument. He says there's plenty of evidence for God's creation There's plenty of evidence for a worldwide flood. And now Peter lays it down in verse 7 when he says, And by the same word, the certain, powerful, effective, sure word of God, the present heavens, this present arrangement of heaven and earth have been reserved by God for fire. There is a definite appointment with fire for this world. Because God said, after Noah's flood, to Noah, I will never destroy this world by a flood again. And I will give you a rainbow, a bow set in the sky to remind you that I will never allow a worldwide flood again. But God does promise that there is a future for this heaven and earth. And the future, unlike in Noah's day being destroyed or rearranged by water, the next time God rearranges this heaven and earth one day, it will not be by water, it will be by fire. And Peter is saying, if you believe in the word of God, then you know this is going to happen. Because all those people in Noah's day who says, rain, what's rain? It's never going to rain 
Where are they now? And the Bible is filled with verses that remind us of the sure, certain, reliable, dependable, effective Word of God. The psalmist said, Your Word, Lord, is forever settled in the heavens. Jesus Himself said, Heaven and earth is going to pass away one day, but what? My Word will never pass away. In fact, Jesus says, Until heaven and earth passes away, He said, Not one letter or even one stroke of a letter will pass until everything is fulfilled. That's what Jesus said. So Jesus basically is laying his reputation on the line. He's saying, if God said it, it's going to happen. And, and the whole world can mock. The whole world can scoff. The whole world can deny that God exists. The whole world can deny that God has ever intervened. The whole world can deny that Jesus is coming. But my friends, God said it. It will happen. We need to be prepared. Instead of caught off guard. That's why he says, By the same word, The present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Pretty pretty clear. By the way, the word ungodly means living as if God doesn't exist. Which, sad to say, there are even people who profess to be Christians who, if you looked at their life, they live as if God doesn't exist. And the word destruction doesn't mean annihilation, folks. It means to suffer loss. Those people will suffer unbelievable loss one day. And ruin and pain. Because everything they lived for, everything they thought life was about because it wasn't about God, they're going to end up seeing one day, that's all wrong. And those who truly knew the Lord and lived for Him, they're the ones that had it right. Acts 17.30 God says through the early church that God has commanded all peoples everywhere to repent because He has set a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17.30 and 31. God has set a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Are we living for that day? Does the truth of what's going to happen one day truly grip and captivate our lives? I mean, folks, they may deny that Jesus is coming back, but may I remind you of a few passages of Scripture that teach just the opposite from God's Word? What about the words from Jesus Himself? He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The day that Jesus ascended into heaven, angels came and said to the men standing there, Men of Galilee, why are you standing gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus will so come in like manner just as you saw him go. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the clouds. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, encourage one another, Paul says with these words. And then John in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, look. He is returning with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the earth will mourn because of him. This will certainly come to pass, John says. Amen. And the next to last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20. Jesus says, yes, I am coming. Folks, we're going to live in a day and an age where there's going to be increasing mocking and scoffing, trivializing God, pushing God to the fringes of the world, denying what God's Word says. And that's why it behooves us as Christians more than ever to make sure that we stay in a spiritually healthy place and that we continue to grow and, and keep our focus where it needs to be, gripped and captivated by the Word of God. So that we allow our pure mind to continually be stirred and awakened and aroused from, from lethargy and complacency and spiritual sleep. Because we will not survive in this world if we don't. We will get caught up in all the distractions, we will get caught up in the denials. And our life will begin to reflect. Ah, eh, Jesus isn't coming back. It doesn't really matter how I live. It doesn't matter if I ever talk to anybody about Christ or read my Bible or pray. That's not really important. It's not really important if I find a church and get connected and serve. And I don't, I don't need to go to church that much. It's not important. Folks, there's coming a day when we stand before Jesus. Where if we don't stay awake and alert, we're going to wish we had. Because we're going to realize that all that we did and all that we lived for and all that we got caught up with as far as the world goes, really in eternity, didn't matter that much. Jesus is coming. I don't know about you, but I'm excited that Jesus is coming. I'm looking forward to Jesus coming. And next week, Peter's going to share with us more wonderful truth about the return of Jesus. And why, why hasn't he come yet? Why has he waited and is waiting so long to return? Peter's going to tell us why next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, Lord, you want to stir us through your word and through your spirit. That, Lord, you don't want us to become complacent 
and ho-hum about our walk with You and our relationship with You and, and even, Lord, our life in this world. Help us to see, God, that we are here for a reason. Just like Esther, all of us, it could be said about us that we are at this particular point in history for such a time as this because this is the time God placed us to be here. And there's a reason for why we're here now and we weren't born a hundred or five hundred years ago. God, help us to realize that and know that you have a, a role and responsibility for us right here, right now. God, may we be stirred today by the words of Peter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before we stand and sing this song, one other thought. When we see Jesus one day, I hope this will encourage you. When we see Jesus one day, Jesus will not look at any one of us and compare our lives with anybody else. He won't say, Jeff, why weren't you more like him or more like her? Or why didn't you do what he did or what she did? Because that's not what it's about, even though we get caught up in comparing ourselves with others. You know what Jesus is going to say to us when he sees us? He's going to say, did you ever become who I created you to be? That's what Jesus is going to say. See, the measuring stick, the standard for every one of us isn't other people, isn't someone else. It's us. God is going to say, did you ever become, did you ever embrace who I made you to be? All God cares about is that we become who he made us to be. That we reach the potential he placed within us. That's all God cares about. He's never going to compare us to anyone else. But he will say, did you reach the potential I put within you? And so stop comparing yourselves to everyone else. And start allowing God to work within you to make you the you that he wants you to be. Let's stand and praise the Lord today.